0: Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Two tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified Yes for Me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com goodplan The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin.
1: Episode 144 of The Bowery Boys. Mysteries and magicians of old New York.
2: Hey, it's the Bowery Boys.
1: Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurochipo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com.
2: Welcome. And hi there, welcome to the Barry Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers, and I'm kind of creeped out by that, Greg. <laughs> Turn down the lights, settle into bed, for it is time for the sixth annual Barry Boys Halloween special.
1: The fact that this is our sixth Halloween show is scary enough. Frightening indeed. But tonight we have some really special tales, some spiritual
2: tales. Mysterious, unexplained phenomena will be discussed this evening based on real-life places and events in New York City history and Greg and I are both putting on our over dramatic <laughs> ghost story voices even
1: though these aren't all ghost stories.
2: No they're not. We're expanding our vision here mm. a little bit. In the past we've spread throughout the boroughs hunting down all all manner of ghosts. We are going to have a couple traditional ghost stories, but we're adding two more additional stories that focus in on New York's obsession with the spirit world. A mixture of magic, illusions, mediums, fortune-telling. And today, the evidence still isn't conclusive. Was it real? Was it a fraud? So we have decorated our recording studio here in a, a traditional, over-the-top fashion with some, these little lighting features with sparkles. <laughs> glowing right. LED pumpkins and yes, cobwebs. Greg has
1: really not
2: let me down again <laughs> this year. Right, over here is a pez dispenser in Mm. the form of a bat so we are now appropriately over the top to present to you four amazing tales of mysteries and magicians in new york Now, before we dig into these Mm. tales here, I wanted to read something that I found in the New York Post in 1936. This was the front page story of the Post, okay? Keep that in mind. This little thing I'm about to read you has little elements of the things that we are about to talk about. The headline on that particular day was Ghost Box at Audience Nets $10,000 for PAL. So it was regarding the Yorkville ghost. As the article reads, quote, Angelina, the Yorkville ghost, did not walk last night. H.S. Pretty, who knew her well when he lived in the haunted house at 517 East 86th Street, knew very well that she wouldn't, even though she had the opportunity to earn $10,000 for him by one brief personal appearance. So essentially, this ghost story in Yorkville... Um, was so publicized by this particular time that... That somebody was willing to pay $10,000 to see her? The president of the Universal Society of Psychical Research was offering $10,000 for proof of this dead Italian woman named Angelina. So hundreds of people showed up at this particular brownstone at 86th Street, shining their flashlights, anxious to see an appearance of Miss Angelina. Now, what this H.S. Pretty, who I guess was the man who advertised the story, what he was probably warning against is the fact that if you have a lot of photographers in a place, Mm. ghosts aren't likely to show up. Not to mention flash cubes. It's just kind of messy. They have a way of drowning out the spirit. Exactly. So, despite the hundreds of people pouring throughout the building, they were unable to find the ghost of Angelina. As the article says, quote, "...lights were extinguished as Angelina had not started her nightly rounds." Mr. Dunninger pointed out that it was only midnight Standard Time. Ghosts operate, if at all, on Eastern Standard Time, he said. (laughs) We must wait. At an early hour, Mr. Dunninger, abandoned the individual, took the reporters to the nearest saloon where he bought them one beer each and amused them by pulling half dollars out of their ears. <laughs> a magician. He did not say whether he intends to wait for Angelina again under more suspicious circumstances. So that's to just sort of warm us up here. This, this idea mixture of ghostly presence and magic and a little fraud here. But also showmanship. But Tom, let me proceed now downtown to visit another ghost, probably one of New York's most famous ghosts. More famous than Angelina? Well, more prominent and more visible, shall we say. So we're going all the way downtown to 326 Spring Street on the far lower west side to what is truly a haunted house and almost 200 years old. Today it is a tavern called Ear Inn. Oh, I've seen the mm earring, right. All the way over by the West Side Highway. The name of this story is The Saucy Sailor. So at this particular address, it's one of the oldest federal homes still standing in New York City. No surprise that a building this old would be possessed with a few spirits in it. Historians believe it was built in the early 1800s, probably sometime during the years of the War of 1812. It was built by a man named James Brown. He was a black ex-slave, a war veteran of the Revolutionary War, and an aide to George Washington. Some speculate that he is actually represented in that famous painting, Washington Crossing the Delaware. Really? That he is actually in that painting. You'll have to give it a close look. So Mr. Brown built this three-story home here, operated a tobacco store on the first floor, and then lived upstairs. And there was, the third floor was an attic room. At this time, in the early 19th century, it was situated right on the waterfront. Now, over the years, the house didn't move. The waterfront actually did, thanks to added landfill. Right, because now it's a couple blocks away from the actual water. Right. In 1817, a tavern was opened here, um, which would make it one of the oldest operating pubs in New York City. Throughout the 19th century, it was a few other things as well. Um, Flash forward to 1890, when an Irish immigrant reopened the place as a tavern and operated it quite successfully, almost until the end of Prohibition, of course. Until the end of Prohibition? Well, let's just say it still served booze during Prohibition, for it was also, like so many buildings, was also a speakeasy. And like so many buildings upstairs, it was a brothel. A small brothel, but a brothel, nonetheless. A one-stop shop. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the place reopened after Prohibition as an old salty sailor's bar. Um, There was no name attached to it, but because of the prominence of the green door that you had to open to get inside of it, they called it the green door. Now, it was around this period of time, so the middle of the 20th century here, that the bar was frequented by a young sailor by the name of Mickey. Uh, we don't know his last name. It's been lost to the sands of time. To the sea. The only traits that we know about him are the ones that he still exhibits in the building to this day and for over 60 years. Now, for at some point, uh, perhaps during a drunken bender one evening, he left the green door. Now, he wouldn't have heard the sound of boats. He would have actually heard the sound of trains, for the Spring Street Terminal was situated right across the street. So it also created a lot of traffic around this area of the city. And I believe we talk about that in our Highline
1: podcast.
2: Correct. Didn't mean to break the mood. (laughs) But it was because of all this traffic, and we don't know the circumstances, Mickey was hit by a car and killed. Now, life here at the Green Door was pretty uneventful for the next few decades, but people made note of the building's particular history. I mean, by the 1960s, it was a building that was 150 years old, and it was rescued, of course, by this drive to preserve landmarks in the mid-1960s. So, indeed, in 1969, this very building was made into a New York landmark. So in 1977, some college students moved in upstairs and eventually bought the whole building. These college students had operated a music magazine called The Ear, and they decided to name the bar after the magazine. So they decided to put a little black paint over part of the B in bar. Oh, in the neon sign. Right, so that it would spell Ear, and so from that point forward, it became the Ear Inn. Very comfy, very out-of-the-way place to have a drink, with a lot of seafaring and historical clutter on the walls, old photographs, there's even a large ear on the wall. There's something so charming and popular about the place that even Mickey, who had been killed decades before, even Mickey has returned. Now, the current owner of the Ear Inn claims that it is a fact that Mickey still haunts the ear end to this day. Certainly a restless spirit. Maybe part of the reason he's sticking around, because as the bar was mostly patronized by men back in the day, well, he can't stop being a little flirtatious. Sounds like Mickey's a little randy. Randy and rude. Women patrons have reported being pinched while standing at the bar. They'll be startled, obviously. They'll turn, as if to like tell them to back off, and no one would be standing there. The fireplace would sometimes light a flame all by itself. In fact, there was a fire in 1996 that, to this day, no one knows quite how it started there. Some attribute that fire to this mischievous little spirit, Mickey. You know, it's a small place, so, I mean, Mickey might poke you or touch you while you're there. Um, Sometimes he might just be standing in the corner watching you as you're drinking or while you're talking with your friends and just looking at you. Occasionally, he gets rather thirsty. Diners have sworn that their drinks have disappeared from people's tables. And this is something that has been pervasively mentioned and noticed throughout the years. These disappearing drinks. Disappearing drinks at a bar. It's incredible. It must be a ghost, Greg. (laughs) It must be a ghost. Many customers report seeing a ghostly shape. In the corner, or a shadow of a man being cast upon their table as they're sitting there when nothing is standing behind them. Although these days it seems like Mickey seems to stay up in the attic today, which is just a little storage, but there used to be apartments up there, believe it or not. People used to live there. Women who lived there reported as they were going to bed at night and just tucking in. They would feel a shudder, and they would feel as though like somebody was entering the bed, a shifting of the sheets and the blankets. And of course, they'd turn, and there would, there would be nobody in bed with them. Other times, the beds would just shake violently in the middle of the night. One family who had actually rented that space moved out because they were so disturbed by these nighttime visitations. Perhaps they weren't frightened, necessarily, because Mickey doesn't seem to have been a sort of an ominous ghost, but they were just not getting any sleep. And again, they thought it was just Mickey. Or was it? Many years ago, the owner allowed a documentary film crew into the ear end to film for about three days. And they, of course, naturally, in these stories, brought a psychic with them. The psychic attempted to communicate with Mickey and then, you know, pry him away from his ghost booze or whatever. But then she discovered something else, that there were more spirits in the house, that there were several that inhabited the ear Inn. So this bar is truly full of spirits. In today's modern context, of course, Mickey's behavior, well, this is unwanted sexual assault, of course. Well, a crowded historic bar is no excuse (laughs) for inappropriate contact. It absolutely is not. Now, I wanted to experience Mickey myself. So this past Monday, it was a stormy, rainy night. Do you remember that? It was very, like, almost foggy. I thought, well, that would be a perfect time to see if I could uh, introduce myself Mm. to Mickey and let him know what they were talking about him on the podcast. I did go to the ear-in and had a charming dinner and a couple nice brews and even sat in that back dining room that so much history has gone through, of course, I didn't see Mickey, unfortunately, but if I had a few more drinks, I'm sure he would have popped right in front of me. (laughs) And he may have even helped you finish those drinks. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Right. So that is the story of Mickey and Eerie, and a very lighthearted ghost's tale. And a much friendlier tale than the one I'm about to tell you, Greg. Hmm. For
1: this is the story of Who's Hidden in Melrose Hall? This is, in fact, one of the most famous haunted houses in the city's history. This story taking place in Brooklyn, more specifically in the Flatbush neighborhood.
2: I will add that I don't know what you're about to say. I don't know the details of the story. But in researching just ghost stories Mm -hmm. of Brooklyn, this one comes up almost more than any other story. Well, the house in
1: question, Melrose Hall, is a lovely old mansion that was built on 20 acres of land surrounded by... By green lawns and gardens, a row of elegant trees leading from the street up to its front door. It all started with a man named Lane. He was an Englishman who, in the mid 1700s, was kicked out of England because of his rather wild ways. So, and you can imagine it takes some wild ways to get <laughs> kicked <laughs> out of a country. Sure. <laughs> so, he was forced to go to Brooklyn. Where they'll take anybody. And where he continued his carousing. In 1749, Mr. Lane built this three-story mansion in Flatbush, a rather conservative building from the outside. It had two wings shooting off its main section. Its roof was steeply sloped up, and inside he had splendid furnishings, grand staircases, nice artwork, an immense ballroom, a giant library that took up most of the ground floors and bedrooms upstairs and around it were you know other mansions
2: like this and other farmland it's
1: hard to imagine
2: of course uh, this neighborhood being like that today but it was just large farms spread out and connected by dirt roads so you're saying it's rather secluded
1: Well, when Mr. Lane died, his mansion was purchased by the Colonel William Axtell, who was a a British sympathizer and a loyalist, because around this time, of course, there were rising tensions with the British. Axtell was, as well, a, a rather wild man, and he changed this mansion accordingly. He installed secret chambers... And hidden staircases throughout the mansion to hide his fellow loyalists so that if there was trouble, they could hide and still, you know, be comfortable. But he also built dungeons where he could entrap and then cast away uh, American patriots. So he's really thinking of everything here in these new additions Meanwhile, you know, the party raged on upstairs. According to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, quote, it was a scene of sumptuous dinners, splendid balls, costly private theatricals, and receptions that were attended by men famous in civil and military life and women renowned for their beauty and
2: accomplishments. So fairly high society, I see like a rows of carriages outside, mm. full moon, the sound of light music entertainment inside. Men walking around, binders of women...
1: Now, pulling back a little, before Axel even came to the United States, you need to understand that his romantic life
2: was a bit of a mess. And it's going to inform his life here at Melrose. Absolutely, because what happened is, he's
1: part of a noble family, the second son. He was engaged to marry a beautiful woman, but in fact, right before the marriage, he found himself hopelessly and helplessly in love with her sister, Alva,
2: which always happens in these gothic spooky
1: stories, right? And of course, they had a little clandestine affair. Well, he asked mom and dad on both sides if they could just ditch the fiance and get married to the sister. Nobody liked that idea. It was all very embarrassing for all parties involved. So he ended up getting married to the original fiance and then setting sail and coming to the U.S., where he would then buy this house and start his life here. Unfortunately for him, though, in the very next ship was Alva. She had disguised herself as a man and hopped on the next boat for the United States. She came over to New York as well and was hunting down her sister and her lover. And so she must have found them? She did find them. She spied her sister and her wannabe lover and and finally got through to Axton. He, in a moment of daring and deceit, let her into the house. And fortunately for him, there were plenty of secret rooms and chambers where he could house her. There was, in fact, a perfect room directly above the ballroom, so on the second floor, that he made out to be a special cage, really. It was decked out with beautiful things and artwork, but there was only one catch. She could never leave this room. It was hidden, and nobody really knew how to get there, except for Axel, who knew how to get to this room through a secret staircase in his closet.
2: So this is so twisted, Tom.
1: Right. It was a twisted staircase.
2: (laughs) And a twisted sister.
1: Alva and the colonel have a situation here, Mm -hmm. whereby Alva is now entrapped in her own little cage, in her own little room. Love nest. In her love nest. And her lover, the husband of her sister, comes to visit her every night at midnight. A romantic visit. And other than that, there's just one maid of Axtel's who knows about her very existence and who tends to her. So we have one maid, and we have Axtel. And we have a woman
2: in a cage. Somewhere in a house that no one can find, So, was the wife aware of this situation? Was it just a sort of understood situation? Well,
1: no, she didn't even know. She had no idea that her sister was in another hidden wing of the house. And in retrospect, perhaps she thought something was strange when her sister wasn't responding to the letters that she was sending back to England. Little did she
2: know, she could have just saved the postage. (laughs) This is a very Jane Eyre situation. Jane Eyre of Brooklyn here. Mm. The whole thing is indeed very improbable,
1: and the most improbable part is that this continued for three years. Three years of these nightly visits, three years of hiding in this strange little room, three years of two sisters divided by a hidden staircase. Unfortunately for all parties involved, the Colonel Axtell was called away to quell some uprising in one of the British colonies. While he was away, he left, of course, the old maid to take care of Alva. And the old maid died, leaving poor Alva alone and hungry. She had two windows, two small stained glass windows that were sealed shut. When the Colonel Axtell returned triumphant from his trip abroad, he was obviously eager to see his lover. He got home, raced upstairs went through the closet and down the secret staircase, and found Alva dead in her secret chamber. This in turn drove Colonel Axtell mad. That night, under a full moon, he buried her out under a big old tree next to the house. And then days later, he himself died. Now, the story's not finished. Because finally, even though Alva was was buried, finally, she was free, or at least her spirit, was free to move as it pleased to drift about the house at night passing between rooms making thumps on the floor as she passed from the ballroom to the library and floated up the stairs swinging open elegant carved doors and frightening anybody around alva
2: finally had run of the entire house so mrs axdell is still residing in the house even after her husband has died yes well she in fact
1: found out about the story of of her sister and her husband and then witnessing the moaning and gliding of her sister's ghost she thought that that was not the best environment to raise her (laughs) children right and so she moved the entire family back to England. Subsequent inhabitants of the old mansion told stories of the walking and the thumping and the bumping and the wandering and the spirit of old, poor, lovesick Alva. And an actress named Anna Cora Mowat, who lived in the mansion uh, during the mid-19th century, wrote a memoir called The Autobiography of an Actress in 1854, where she told of the story of Alva, because by this point, the neighbors surrounding Melrose Hall had been telling
2: the story for decades and generations. So this was a famous story in a house that was probably very notorious, especially with all these secret rooms. And now it was inhabited by an actress. <laughs> probably the best person to live in that possible situation. Needless to say, Melrose Hall is no longer there. And to place Melrose Hall on the map, it's located where today's Bedford Avenue between Clarkson and Winthrop. Well, that's like just a couple blocks from Prospect Park, like on right. the south side. Right, that was a moody, atmospheric ghost story. Yeah, to I say hope it wasn't too
1: macabre.
2: Well, the next two stories here are going to have a lot more. Forgive me, Tom. A lot more basis in like actual like newspaper clippings and articles. So. Right. so But we're not going to be steering away too far from the spirit world. We will be talking about this whole movement that happened in the late 19th century, early 20th century, this fascination with spiritualism.
1: By which you mean the ability to communicate with people who had passed on, who were dead.
2: In our ghost podcast two years ago, Supernatural Stories, we t- I told a story of the popularity of seances and how many respected people, including Abraham Lincoln, had been in seances. Like, there was a certain fascination that maybe these things had some validity to them.
1: And certainly, there's still people today who believe in seances, so we don't mean to dismiss a whole movement—
2: Now, another avenue of exploring the spirit realm that sort of popped up around this time, around the 1890s, is something that we probably don't take very seriously today, but they took dead serious. And thus begins the tale of Patience Worth. That avenue of spiritual conversation that I was referring to is the Ouija board, or what they called the planchette in the late 19th century. This is, of course, that wooden plank that has letters and numbers on it, and you have a little triangle that you put your hands on, and you let the spirit speak through you. And I'm sure we've all played with that in oh, high school. Yes, um, I've gotten spooked out late at night with friends. You said Ouija. I think I used to say ouiji. The correct pronunciation is Ouija, and let me explain why. People started manufacturing them in the 1890s. In 1901, this business was taken over by a Baltimore businessman named William Fold. He eventually gave it the trademarked name Ouija Board. Originally, it was claimed that Ouija meant Egyptian for good luck. But in Mm. fact, it's actually a combination of the French and German words for yes. Ah, Ouija. So not really Ouija, and so fooled. Actually, on the original boards, he add he actually had the spelled out pronunciation on the board. If you if you see an old oh. antique Ouija board, you'll right. see that. I'll have to dust mine off. Now people really took the Ouija board quite seriously. In fact, in 1920. It actually went all the way to the Supreme Court. The classification of what a Ouija board was, and there was a case involving the taxation, and the Supreme Court rejected the case, basically saying that it should be taxed like a sporting good. Had they wanted it taxed as a sort of nonprofit, a they, church? Yes, they they thought that it shouldn't that it shouldn't have any tax. That it had a spiritual purpose, but they were like, "No, it's a toy." By the way, in 1927, Fold, the man who basically brought the Ouija board to prominence, died mysteriously when he fell off the roof of his factory trying to install a flagpole. How tragic and mysterious. Well, of course, in the 1960s, Parker Brothers bought the rights to this and, of course, have made it a popular creepy board game for kids of all ages. Once you graduate from shoots and ladders. But back in the Gilded Age, it was not a joke the Ouija board, a great many mediums used it to speak with spirits. As we mentioned in our Supernatural show, mediums often wrote books on behalf of the spirits, like it was being transcribed. I believe you had a clever joke. They were the Mm ghostwriter. Thank you. They would sometimes use the Ouija board to be able to write these books. In 1917, a woman named Emily Grant Hutchins, who lived in Hannibal, Missouri, wrote an entire book and claimed it had been written through her by Mark Twain. (laughs) <laughs> Which is ironic
1: because uh, Twain himself was into debunking spiritualists oh, sure. and,
2: and other humbugs. He would have rolled over in his grave had he been in it at this time. <laughs> None of these we just spiritualists were more famous than a good friend of Ms. Hutchins here, a St. Louis woman uh, named Pearl Lenore Curran. Curran seemed to have a strong and unusual connection with this object, Pretty soon, messages streamed through the board into her from this particular woman, from one particular spirit named Patience Worth. Ms. Worth was born in the late 17th century. She was a British woman, and she traveled over to the United States, maybe on the same boat as Mr. Axel. Who knows? Or his wife's sister. Because of this, Ms. Curran, this Midwestern woman, spoke in an old English accent, and she wrote pages and pages of poems and novels. And she would sit there, and she would transcribe them, and she would speak such words as, O, oh, my love, is thy day dark? Behold, then, he is the sun. Is thy day over bright? Then behold, he is the shadow. Wait, I'm
1: confused. These words are coming through the Ouija board? The the medium,
2: this woman? Yeah, she's transcribing them through the Ouija board. Uh,
1: Because I thought it was just you were getting the words. I have, you know, through the little hole. You were picking up the alphabet. I had no
2: idea that you could also pick up an (laughs) accent and an entire persona. That's why you got to be careful with them. She found out that Worth had been, when she came over to the United States, had been murdered by Indians when she had come over here. So this was a ghost that was floating around the continent here and found her here in St. Louis. So Pearl took her act on the road here. You know, she, she decided to make some coin out of this. Like I said, she wrote several books, and one book in 1917 called The Sorry Tale, A Story of the Time of Christ, um, which was a story about Palestine during the era of Jesus Christ. The Joint Committee of the Literary Arts of New York named Patience Worth one of the nation's most outstanding authors, (laughs) despite not being in the corporal world. (laughs) but they awarded the
1: prize to
2: <laughs> to Pearl Curran here wow now i wonder i wonder what her acceptance speech was like <laughs> now with new york's fascination with spiritualism of course pearl and patience swung through New York, of course. In November of 1919, she stayed at the Hotel Netherland and then performed, if you will, in a townhouse on 188 East 66th Street, which was the home of a prominent banker named Herman Baer. This particular meeting was, quote, attended by scientists, psychologists, writers, and experts. One of the people who was there was a man, James Hyslip, Um, the spiritual investigator and president of the Psychical Research Society. He had actually confronted Pearl much earlier and called her fake and was completely skeptical of her talents. Later, she refused to take a meeting with him because of this. And this is sort of a running theme. People who have asked for proof of what she was doing. She She had no patience for them. And she would run away. Some people were convinced, though, and maybe this was in the early days before substantive psychological evaluation, but one psychologist said, quote, Miss Curran is an intelligent woman, but her mind is much inferior to that of patient's Worth, kind Mm -hmm. of implying that, like, well, someone must be speaking with her, right? So is everyone convinced? No. There was one man who was fully unconvinced, and here's the second half of my story here. This is a man who is one of the original Ghostbusters of New York. His name is Joseph Ryn. He was born in the 1860s, the son of a fruit vendor, but had a fascination with the occult and into the world of the mind. So in 1905, he was the head of the Brooklyn Philosophical Association, and they had a headquarters in Williamsburg. Through his work at the Philosophical Association, he debunked several spiritualists, he had a reputation that by 1911, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle wrote an entire profile of his abilities to break the will of any faux spiritualist out there. He would frequently ape the shtick of mediums and possessed individuals, and he would go to like Manhattan cafes and have shows where he would be like a faux fortune teller or faux medium. Oh, wow. Now, flash forward to a few years later here. So we have Joseph Bren in New York when Miss Curran oh, good. and Patience Worth are flying into town. On February 1920, he threw the gauntlet at Miss Curran and offered her $5,000 to return to New York and prove her powers and her connection with patience worth. Let Ms. Curran come to New York and appear in any public place. Um, He basically taunted her in the newspapers. He had this elaborate method that he was going to test her where he covered the Ouija board and had coded letters on it and he wanted to see if she would be able to utilize her skills. Curran accepted and actually suggested that they rent out Carnegie Hall. Oh my. So, which in fact... Wren did so. He took his $5,000 offer to Carnegie, and on May 19th, 1920, thousands of people. Build Carnegie Hall to see this sort of extravaganza and uh, debate, if you will. Debate and the, debunking. Exactly. Like they were in people, de Carnegie Hall. Into Carnegie Hall. So, so Wren was pitted against five different spiritualists. The crowd who had paid anywhere from 75 cents to $2.50 to witness all of this um, saw spiritual leaders debating the hot topic. But then, they, of course, they actually had practitioners, and that's what everyone came to see. Perhaps the most vivid display was a medium named Ms. McKenzie, who came out clad in all white, quote, from throat to shoes, and her waist was spanned by a heavy tassel cord. Immediately, she came out and she lifted her hands out towards the crowd. She was immediately heckled by audience members as she raised her hand to summon a spirit to come forth. Someone in the rafters cried, Woo! <laughs> Uh, Of course, like the crowd is laughing and screaming at her, but she's continuing to like point to people in the audience and say, there, you, Frank is standing by your side. I can see him. He is white and shadowy. Of course, that person would not know a Frank who had died. And so Miss McKenzie tried again and again, and of course, it just, it just got worse oh, and worse. Tough crowd. Wren stood up and proclaimed, In the course of my 35 years of psychic investigations, I never saw such a miserable exhibition as that of <laughs> Mrs. McKenzie. It's a disgrace to spirits to have such people represent them. <laughs> Others mounted the stage, of course, and they were summarily dismissed as well. You may be noticing, however, that I haven't mentioned Miss Curran's name, for of course, she did not end up showing up. How about Patience? Neither did Patience. And she could have. It would have been a lot easier for her to travel. She claimed that the psychic conditions were not right, so she ended up not coming back for this particular uh, exhibition, meaning she probably couldn't prove it. Kern eventually toured through the United States through the 1920s. She continued to transmit the words of Patience Worth here, long after anyone really cared. Uh, She moved out to California and died in 1937. Now, Joseph Wren, however, he would live until the 1950s. Now, he would collaborate with a childhood friend frequently in debunking some of these. Harry Houdini, who I believe may pop up in your story here Uh, in a minute. He's he's ready to escape. Well, Mr. Wren practiced magic himself throughout the years. He lived the full life and um, he ended up dying in 1952. And somebody needs to make a movie about this guy. He's very fascinating, as is his old childhood friend.
1: Houdini is, of course, one of, if not the most famous and celebrated magician in the U.S. But he was obviously more than just a magician. He was also a stunt artist, an escape artist, and he was known really around the world. He was born Eric Weitz uh, in Budapest in 1874, moved to the U.S. with his mother and brothers in 1878, from a young age, Harry was very athletic, and he was also into daring do He was a trapeze artist, and he performed also as a magician. He took on the name Houdini as an homage to the French magician Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin.
2: Say that five times fast.
1: <laughs> Robert Houdin. 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 Yes. So, so he just put, threw an eye on the end of it and made it Houdini. In 1893, he was performing with his brother Dash in their brotherly magician show, The Brothers Houdini, (laughs) out at Coney Island when he met his future wife, Bess. She would replace Dash in his show and serve as his onstage assistant throughout his life and career. And by this time, Houdini was sort of changing his shtick a bit into escape tricks using handcuffs. So he was like a handcuff pro. He could get out of any cuff. His fortunes changed when he met the great theatrical empresario Martin Beck, who booked him on the Orpheum vaudeville circuit. Oh, right. <laughs> booked him on the Orpheum. So he toured Europe. He went to the big capital cities, a six-month engagement in London. And they did, of course, publicity stunts, you know, where he would challenge the local police, Scotland Yard, whoever, to lock him up as best they could, and then he would get out of it. When he returned to New York in 1904, he was a star, and he was very rich, and he bought himself and his family a brownstone at 278 West 113th Street, which is just north of Central Park. Mm -hmm. But he had to bump it up a little, a little bit, because by this point, there were Houdini imitators. Other people had picked up this handcuff trick. So he thought up more dramatic escapes from sealed milk canisters and wearing chains and thrown in a sack inside a box and dumped into the East River.
2: So these great escapes of Houdini is really what took him to the next level. And what's helping him, I think, by this time is the fact that there's more media. He can now be filmed. He can now be photographed. And indeed, he got into movies. He even started his own movie company.
1: So how did he escape? Well, it's complicated. People who understood his tricks and in whom he confided would, would tell that, you know, he had different methods. Like in straitjackets, he just sort of contorted his body so that he had more wiggle room. He, he was able to dislocate his arm. Ooh. He also had—he was an expert at picking locks. He could pick locks with, like, a thread or with a, a piece of yarn. He hid keys in all kinds of crazy places. He regurgitated keys— So when he was alone, he could spit out a key and use that to get something unlocked. So he used physical means to pull this off. But in advertisements for Houdini, this is where we get into the spiritual realm. Uh They, of course, weren't going to show him regurgitating a key. Instead, they showed him, quote, dematerializing in order to escape. So there were elaborate tricks. There's one where he would be on a stage and they would lay down a, a an oriental rug on the stage so that nothing could pass underneath it and then men would come up on stage and build a brick wall. Bricklayers would put up a brick wall and then they'd put little partitions, little screens to either side of it. Harry would then invite audience members up on stage around it to see that he wasn't escaping. He'd go in one side, saying to the crowd, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, and I'm through, and walk out of the (laughs) other partitions on the other side of the brick wall. This was stunning. People saw that he didn't pass underneath it, that he didn't go around it. So the only explanation to some minds was that he was sort of,
2: evaporating, disappearing from this world and then reappearing in another place. They had, he had abilities to move into some kind of portal in which to transfer his body from one side of the brick wall to the other. And of course, that helped sell tickets. This
1: is, as you just noted, the moment of spiritualism. And it, and so this was a very much talked about topic. So Miss Curran is doing her thing
2: around the same time, correct?
1: Absolutely, with patience. Mm-hmm. But much like Mr. Wren, Harry was into debunking these spiritualists. He He didn't like to see people, ironically... Being taken advantage of and gullible. He thought that magic was its own thing. It was a spectacle, it was fun. You could sell a show maybe with sort of sensational publicity, but it's, it, that's different from telling people to really believe in something and, and to get people excited about talking to people who are dead. Especially,
2: if, yeah, if it's loved ones, especially. Right. I mean, it's cruel. And it was always loved ones.
1: I mean, mm-hmm. you were always talking to somebody you, you dearly loved who had passed on to another world. That is far more manipulative than passing through a brick wall. Mm-hmm. And much like Mr. Rin, Harry joined other experts in the debunking process. He joined Scientific American in offering a huge reward to anybody who could scientifically prove their spiritual powers. And, of course, nobody ever did. The only problem with this for Harry is that he was in a bit of a catch-22. He was saying that in his own performances, he wasn't using any of these spiritual powers. Techniques, right. But at the same time, of course, he wasn't going to tell anybody how it was. He would just say that he was using masterful, physical laws and rules to amaze people and, and excite them. Mm-hmm. But still, he wouldn't tell his secret because then it would no longer be a,
2: a magic trick. It's like the code of magicians. I think he was even in the original Society of American Magicians with Joseph Wren. So now, Greg, I'd like to bring somebody else into the story who you're
1: probably not expecting. And that would be the Scottish author Sir Conan Doyle. Ooh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, right. So Doyle, already an accomplished author by this time, say so 1910, 1915, 1920 had turned to spiritualism because he got all wrapped up in it. He, in (laughs) fact, stopped writing so that he could really devote himself to the spiritualist world. He traveled around the world. He lectured on the topic. He
2: used his fame to spread the news that people could speak with people who had passed on. I think even in my research for the Ouija board story, his name popped up a couple times. I think he also was a proponent of that as a method of communicating. That doesn't surprise
1: me at all. And he and Houdini had been friends since the 1920s when they met in England when Houdini was on the road. They had a friendly relationship, and Houdini actually liked to have a friend who believed in these spiritual powers. He he enjoyed that the ability to have an intellectual argument with him. Though he was a little bit bothered by the fact that Doyle would say things such as, and I quote... This ability to unbolt locked doors is undoubtedly due to Houdini's mediumistic powers, and not to any normal operation of the lock. The effort necessary to shoot a bolt from within a lock is drawn from Houdini the medium. But it must not be thought that this is the only means by which he can escape from his prison, for at
2: times his body can be dematerialized and withdrawn. So Doyle was saying this about Houdini. Houdini, of course, clearly knows that this isn't true. Right. rather prominent people on the international stage here. Right, so you can see a little conflict.
1: So, Doyle had come to the United States in 1922 for one of his lecture tours, and Houdini invited him to his house to prove just once and for all that trickery could accomplish the same things that mediums were doing and that were very much affecting Doyle. So he invited him over, and he said, look, I'm going to prove to you that I can, quote, read your mind. So Doyle comes into the room, and Houdini has hung a slate, a blank slate, from the Mm. middle of the room. He's also taken three balls that are sitting there. Mm -hmm. Houdini and Doyle and another friend who's the head of the Magicians Association are sitting around the table... Houdini instructs Doyle to take one of those balls and put it in a jar of ink, which he does. Then he takes a slip of paper, hands it to Doyle and says, I want you to walk as far away as you like and write anything you like on this slip of paper and then return to this room. I shall sit here and be watched at all times by our magician friend to make sure that I don't do anything sketchy. I'm paraphrasing. Right, of course. Doyle goes over two blocks away and bends over, scribbles Mm -hmm. something on this sheet of paper, comes back and hands it to him, and then is instructed to pull the ball out of the ink and place it upon the slate. To his amazement, and to everybody's amazement in the room, except perhaps Houdini, the ball starts turning on its own and starts writing on the slate Mene, mene tecul ufarsen. What does, Latin, that, what does that mean? Latin for a very famous Bible verse. An astonished Doyle unfolds the slip of paper, which says the exact same thing on it. Wow. Well, how? How did that happen? And unf- Seriously, uh, unfortunately, I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. And unfortunately, this was intended to prove to Doyle that Houdini didn't have any mystical or mediumistic powers. Except And seemed. that he
2: could accomplish this by trickery. But it seems like... This did happen by some sort of strange mental power and because
1: of course Houdini would not explain to him how he did the trick, and the magician begged him to explain how this this trick worked and and he he wouldn't though he did swear to never do the trick again
2: because he found it too quote spooky wait so so you're not kidding we still we no one knows how he did this
1: no no and you know, perhaps it's been exaggerated through the years, but because his friend Ernst, the magician, retold it until his last days. So, I don't know. So, in the meantime, Doyle is giving lectures that are sold out during his time in New York at Carnegie Hall, downtown from
2: Houdini, just uh, two years after your great project medium. <laughs> it's like a the nexus of of New York spirituality. Who knew that about Carnegie Hall? Right, that's when they
1: knew how to sell out a show, you know? <laughs> During his lectures, he was selling them out because he was not just giving a dry lecture, like one might give, say, at Cooper Union, mm-hmm. um, about the subject. He was also showing magic lantern slides mm. of, of these sort of spirit photo- photographs that people sending with a dead figure next to them, you know, which was transparent. Done, I think, just by double exposure, but still that was, you know, that was mind-blowing back in the day. Audience members were worked into a tizzy. People were shouting. They fainted. People wandered aimlessly up and down the aisles, not knowing what to do. People, people were seeing and hearing from and communicating with people who they loved who had died before. Oh it was God. a mess in there. <laughs> And the sad thing, really the tragic thing, is that people left Carnegie Hall, still worked up about this, sometimes to, to really tragic ends. There was a woman named Maud Francher who listened to Doyle actually on the radio. So she overheard one of his speeches, and she took it upon herself to kill her son. And then she downed a bottle of Lysol and a week later died herself, all because she'd been so inspired. Meanwhile, in Brooklyn, a man who had been to Carnegie Hall to the lecture left the show, returned home, said that a spirit had been following him since Carnegie Hall, and so he killed his wife with an ice pick. Well, after all of this, you know, and you've got the sponge writing on the slate, you've got all this going on, Doyle and his wife decided to take a little break and go out to Atlantic City. So they they went to the shore. (laughs) Yes. And they invited the Houdinis out. So Harry and Bess went out to join them. They relaxed on the beach. Well, no surprise. Sir Conan Doyle's wife, Lady Jean, also fancied herself something of a medium. And so she wanted nothing more than to pull Harry off the beach and to bring him back up to their suite so that she could actually have a nice little seance with him and so that she could also once and for all prove to Harry, something that her husband had not been able to prove. That mediums were real, that spiritualism was real, and that she would prove it by communicating with Harry's dead mother, Mm -hmm. who was dearly beloved. So there they sat around the table, quiet, holding hands, when she fell into a trance, and her eyes started fluttering backwards. She had a stack of paper next to her hand, pencil in her hand. She started scribbling messages onto the paper, and her husband, Doyle, started pulling those paper sheet by sheet, out from underneath her, handing them to Harry, who was leafing through, startled to see the words that she was writing. She wrote, Oh my darling, thank God, thank God, at last I'm through. I've tried, oh so often, now I'm happy. Why, of course, I want to talk to my boy, my own beloved boy. Friends, thank you, thank you
2: with all my heart for this. So this was supposedly Houdini's mother speaking from the grave. From Lady Jean. From Lady Jean.
1: Lady Jean was channeling Houdini's mother, and he he said to her during the seance, Can my mother read my mind? I'm thinking of something. A bit of a test for the medium. Mm -hmm. And Houdini wrote something down on a little slip of paper. Well, Lady Jean kept scribbling notes, and she wrote, Lots of things about just how, what an honor it was to talk to her son, and yes, my son, I've always wanted to read your mind, and I'm just so happy, and blah, blah, blah. Harry was exhausted, but he was also rather skeptical, because his mother didn't exactly have a great command of the English language, so it seemed entirely improbable that she'd be communicating in this kind of English, this, my dear, it's so wonderful to finally break through to you, etc. And furthermore, she was Jewish and would not have written from the left side to the right side, uh, across the the page, as Lady Jean was. So Harry was skeptical. So when they were all done, Houdini was exhausted, and he wanted to really get out of them, but he also didn't want to be rude, and he looked at them, and he said, well, here's what I wrote. And the name Powell, Powell, who was a magician friend of Houdini's. And Doyle was so startled, because just two days ago, another English friend of his, named Powell, had died. So of course, once again, Houdini, trying to disprove spiritualism, only proved something even stronger...
2: And stranger... ...to
1: Doyle. Tragically, just a few years later in 1926, while Houdini was traveling on the road, he was in Montreal and he was reclining and, get, and stretching after, after a show, a student came backstage, a university student named J. Gordon Whitehead, approached him and, and said to him, "'Are you strong enough to resist a punch?' to your stomach. And Houdini, who's only half awake and half listening, said, well, sure, yeah. And Whitehead started pummeling Houdini in the stomach. Well, Houdini hadn't tensed his stomach muscles. He hadn't flexed his abs. Houdini was also at this point dealing with a soon-to-rupture appendix. But Ever the Showman, he continued on to Detroit. And on October 24th, after this event, gave a final performance, during which he passed out was revived and finished his show, and afterwards was checked into the hospital in Detroit, and he died there on October 31st, 1926. Halloween of 1926? Ever since then, people have been trying to get in touch with Houdini. With the spirit of Houdini, there are seances being held still today, but Houdini and his wife Bess made a pact that after he died— She would try to get in touch with him through a seance every year one on the anniversary of his death. She kept a lit candle from the moment he died next to a portrait of him. And every Halloween, Bess would sit down with some friends around a table and try to talk to her husband. Finally, on the 10th anniversary of his death, she called it quits. A little bit later, she would quip that 10 years is long enough to wait for any man.
2: (laughs) And he's buried in Queens today, perhaps worth seeking out if you're feeling in the spiritual mood.
1: Is it worth it if you have the patience? (laughs) And that wraps up this season of spooky, ghoulish, and magical tales.
2: Check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll have some pictures of some of the folks that have been mentioned in this show, but not Angelina, I'm afraid, and probably not Patience-Worth. Please join us on Facebook as well and on Twitter. And it is fall, so I want to recommend the walking tour of Washington Square Park that I recorded just a couple months ago. This is actually kind of the perfect time to do it because the leaves are now changing. Just get nice coffee and experience over 200 years of history of that haunted park. I mean, Washington Square Park has a few thousands of ghosts.
1: And you can get that on iTunes or through the blog.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
0: Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's guide to good financial planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash plan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin.